you, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear? I, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear. That you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Hi, I'm Jason Franklin. It's Tuesday, April 6th, and welcome to 10 Minutes or Less on Democracy. A quick rundown of some of the key issues our team at One for Democracy is keeping its eye on this week. This week I'm looking at five key issues. The next steps in filibuster reform and their impact on the infrastructure bill, Biden's first round of judicial appointments, the broader kind of national dynamics of aimed at criminalizing protest, the emerging dynamics in Virginia, the first big off-cycle election, and the ongoing expansion and restriction efforts around voting rights all over the country. So first off, filibuster reform, infrastructure bill for the People Act, what is it going to take to pass anything at the U.S. Senate? So the Senate parliamentarian greenlighted a strategy a couple days ago that would allow Democrats to rely on just the 51 vote threshold to advance some bills rather than the 60 votes needed. Basically, what this means is that using budget reconciliation rules, they're going to be able to do that more often than they expected. So there's going to be new pathways for Democrats to move around Republican blockade. This gives some space for Biden to push forward his infrastructure plan, the For the People Act, that both can be pushed through with just a 51 vote margin. The For the People Act still requires other reforms to the filibuster, so that's going to be ongoing conversation. That infrastructure bill, though, we know is um, $2.3 trillion is what's being pushed. Uh, Biden is on the road trying to build up public support for it aiming for this mix of investments in roads, schools, broadband, clean energy to get approved by the summer. They're stating that they want to pass it by the 4th of July. Uh, it's incredibly popular. So Republicans are now trying a new tactic, debating what counts as infrastructure, because they can't undermine the bill itself, saying you're being sold something different. And interesting, they're trying to now say that rail and water, electrical investments, broadband don't count as infrastructure, even though Trump had a proposed infrastructure bill that included all of those, and they were fine with the definition. So he's seeing a lot of attempts to position against what is really an incredibly popular bill with broad bipartisan support. So I would expect that this infrastructure bill will slowly keep pushing through. There'll be debates around whether the corporate tax rate gets raised to 28% or 25%, like Manchin suggested recently, um, how some of the pieces end up in or out. But overall, the adjustments to the budget reconciliation process and the overall positive initial response to the infrastructure plan are really important. Second up, um, judicial appointments. Haven't heard as much about this in the mainstream news, but it's really important. Last week, Biden put forward his first 11 nominees for federal courts. That's more nominations than any recent president this early in the term. Nine are women, three are black women, and one would be the country's first Muslim federal judge. You know, these appointments are really critical. Carl Hulse, who's the New York Times chief Washington correspondent, was asked why they're so important. And he said, quote, the courts are deciding our political fights now, climate change, voting rights, immigration, redistricting, because the legislative branch is so stuck, the courts are getting to be the arbitrators. So Trump appointed almost 220 federal judges during his four years in office. Right now, there are only 68 vacancies. There's another 26 that are scheduled to open this year. But if Biden administration pushes fast, Biden can actually appoint 42% of the judges Trump appointed in four years in just this year alone. There are limits on total impact because we had a backlog of empty 
seats when Trump took office. But this really does have a possibility to really shift the diversity of experience and perspectives on the federal bench and has a real impact on the types of questions that get asked by judges during cases um, and the rulings, whether majority or even dissenting opinions that get issued on some of the key issues facing our democracy. Another big thing that I've been looking at and that's starting to get some buzz as we settle into the Biden administration is how are Republicans pushing against the infrastructure and the laws that govern our democracy. A big area has been the kind of quiet passage of laws that are trying to make it harder to protest. Since 2016, 13 states have quietly enacted laws that increase criminal penalties for trespassing, damage, or interference with infrastructure sites, and they're counting pipelines and oil refineries as infrastructure sites. They are trying to make it harder to engage in civil disobedience, make it harder to engage in protest. And this criminalization of environmental protests has been fueled by security agencies and oil and gas companies, often major political donors, especially to the Republican Party. You're also seeing a very similar wave of anti-protest laws that began in response to the Black Lives Matter protests last year. Uh, Republican legislators in Florida and 21 other states are working on these bills that prevent localities from cutting police budgets, give more legal protections to people who injure protesters, make it illegal to uh, or increase the penalties for illegal behavior during protests, all the ways to kind of quash people's right to dissent. So something to keep an eye on. How do we show when we disagree with the laws of our land? What restrictions can be placed on freedom of speech or not? Two final things to talk about. First, we all should be looking at Virginia. Virginia has some of the most profound off-cycle elections. Governor, Lieutenant Governor, Attorney General, the House of Delegates are all going to be on the ballot this November. And Virginia is often seen as a bellwether. Where is Virginia going? And as a statewide set of off-cycle elections, what does that mean for the parties in power when they look to the following year? Interestingly and importantly, because Virginia has switched balance of power to democratic control, they have had some real strides forward in voting rights. Virginia used to be one of the worst states in the country in terms of the right to vote. It's now quickly becoming one of the best. They signed, uh, Ralph Northam has signed several bills, including the new Voting Rights Act that uh, bans discrimination against voters based on race or language. It's the first uh, state to enact a state-level Voting Rights Act modeled on the federal law. It means it requires that if any locality wants to change voting practice that would affect a particular racial group, they have to submit changes for public comment and seek the state attorney general's approval to make changes that would be faster than 30 days. They've also passed a whole series of other expansions. Early voting on Sunday, making absentee ballot drop boxes permanent, guaranteeing prepaid postage for absentee ballots, letting early registration for 16 and 17 year olds, establishing a curbside voting right, which is really important for voters with disabilities. And they have amended their state constitution to automatically restore rights to vote to people on parole or those who've completed their sentences. Although that's gonna to have to pass again next year before it goes up for a referendum to voters in November, 2022. But you're seeing these shifts in democratically controlled states that are working to expand the right to vote. Um, similarly, this last week, Colorado passed a bill that would increase the availability of Spanish language voting materials. Delaware passed automatic voter registration through the DMV. Maryland expanded the number of countywide early voting centers. 
New Jersey finally created a permanent in-person early voting period. So all of these efforts are moving forward. Uh, there were also some near misses in Republican states and some even Republican-controlled states doing some good work. Near misses, Iowa, the Republican Senate for the third year declined to pass the Republican House's bill to restore rights to people who've been convicted of a felony. Montana, um, the Republican State House reversed course on a bill to expand Native American voting access after it had passed it last uh, week. On the upside, though, North Dakota's Republican State Senate unanimously passed a law that would make it easier for college students to obtain the documents they needed to register to vote from their colleges, and they rejected an effort to reduce the early voting period from 15 to 9 days. And in Kentucky, a compromise bill passed that mostly expanded voting right access, created three days of in-person voting, set up county vote centers, allowed absentee ballot drop boxes, allowed voters to fix their absentee ballot signature problems, um, and requiring audits and a paper trail. Um, it did also do some things that weren't great. It banned the ability for voters to collect absentee ballots on behalf of others, except family members or postal workers. It didn't go nearly as far as some voting right advocates were hoping, but overall, a good sign in Kentucky. Then you've got some bad. Arizona, um, bills are advancing through Republican committees to require voter ID for absentee ballots and to ban officials from mailing absentee ballots out. Arkansas is passing a law to restrict um, who can be near polling places, which is basically restricting giving out food and water to people in line, banning people from sending out absentee ballot applications. Kansas is stripping judges and executive branch uh, leadership from their powers over election process, restricting absentee voting. Montana is moving forward to end same-day voter registration and to enact stricter voter ID requirements. And then last but not least, Texas has a big bill moving forward to restrict voting access, to let partisan poll watchers have much more access and let them video record anyone they might, quote, suspect of unlockable activity, basically voter intimidation. They're going to cut early voting hours. They're banning drive-through voting. They're prohibiting local officials from mailing absentee ballots. Um, so pretty bad bill overall. Two actually good elements, despite the overall negative voter restrictions, um, requiring paperless voting machines and letting people electronically track their absentee ballots, but overall something that is going to be really problematic in Texas. And in Georgia, which we talked about last week, passed a huge set of voter restrictions. There's now four major lawsuits that have been filed. So this is the other thing we're going to see all through the rest of this year. As these voter disenfranchisement and voter restriction bills pass, lawsuits get filed, and we will follow and track our way through the legal system as they go. But those are a couple of the big items that we're tracking, you know, the filibuster reform, judicial appointments, attempts to criminalize protest, early stages for uh, setting the stage for Virginia with its off-cycle elections, and the ongoing expansion and restriction of voting rights locally. Hope this was helpful. This is our quick kind of 10 minutes or less on democracy today on April 6th and look forward to talking to you again next week.